Hello, and welcome to As My Whimsy Takes Me. I'm Sharon Shu, And I'm Kara Sellison. And I'm Angela Hines. Angela, for you listeners who probably remember from last time, but just as a reminder, Angela is a very dear friend of ours, and she is joining us for our episodes on Five Red Herrings to represent the positive side, <laughs> because Sharon and I agreed that Five Red Herrings is our very least favorite out of all the Lord Peter Whimsy novels, and it just didn't seem fair for the two of us to discuss it ourselves. So we've invited Angela to join us because Angela loves Five Red Herrings. I do. I'm very fond of it. <laughs> she is here to balance out the conversation. <laughs> I'm the, the pro Five Red Herrings side. <laughs> <laughs> You're the pro fish. <laughs> so thank you for joining us, Angela. Yes. We are getting ready to talk about the second half of Five Red Herrings. I mean, admittedly, our episodes are not um, as organized around plot as they usually are because this book is so difficult to disseminate. But mm -hmm. Sharon, do you want to kind of introduce what we're going to be talking about in the second half? Sure. Side note, um, I had thrown out a call to our Twitter followers to ask them to help us come up <laughs> with topics to discuss, because I was at such a loss um, thinking about prepping for this recording. And one follower brought up that it would be really neat to you know, do a breakdown of all the alibis and kind of follow each suspect from beginning to end, because the book like, you know, their stories come out so kind of piecemeal in the book. And Karis and I agreed that that would be a fascinating project for someone else to take on. <laughs> It'd be a fun Tumblr post, but, mm -hmm. but not quite what we want to do in our episode here. So yeah, last time we, we briefly touched on the idea of replication and mimicry and, you know, the fact that Sayers seems to be mimicking a kind of style of detective plot and detective uh, narrative here that she really doesn't use elsewhere in her body of work. And the mystery in this novel, of course, really hinges on the ability of these other artists to paint in the style of the dead victim and thus, you know, sort of set up this scene where it, it looks like he could have accidentally fallen into the river. Um, so I think, yeah, we thought we'd pick up there and see what else we had to say about all of that. Well, let's let's kind of break down some of the mechanics of the murder. For one thing, mm -hmm. uh, the reason that Lord Peter is sure that it's a murder and not an accident is because a crucial item is missing from the scene. There's something that the intelligent reader will be able to figure out what it is. <laughs> Sayers very specifically doesn't tell us what it is, although she does describe everything that Lord Peter sees when he's ferreting around. And so based on that missing item, Lord Peter starts investigating it as a murder. And one of the things that comes out is this question of when did Campbell die? Because he was found, you know, kind of, you know, much later in the morning and he had been or someone wearing his distinctive hat and mm -hmm. cloak was seen painting in mid-morning. But there's some, you know, like there's a question about when he actually died and it comes and out. the rigor mortis. The rigor suggested. mortis and the, yeah. the contents of his stomach. He obviously hadn't had breakfast. So they're just like, mm, 
think maybe he died much earlier and so that meant that someone was pretending to be him to give the impression that he was alive later and so like there's this like wide window of like someone needs an alibi for like this all this time someone is going to have a cast iron alibi for the time when everyone was meant to think that Campbell died but do they have an alibi for earlier in the evening when he probably actually died like all these things are being juggled and it's it's so many it's so many balls in the air can i tell you guys about the item that is missing the missing item so shall we shall we go ahead and yeah let's do it so basically like a couple pages back from where it says the intelligent reader will know um where it's listing the contents you know, once he lays them out, and then it lists each color specifically. There's vermilion, there was ultramarine number two, there was... And then, like, two paragraphs before that, it gives the description of the painting. And the key thing that I, you know, the thing that I found to be key was that there were uh, splashes of red reflection upon the brown and white of the tumbling water beneath, and there is no white paint mentioned in the list of the paints, which is a thing that, like, you kind of have to look at buried in this description of the painting but if you go back and look mm -hmm. and you go wait a minute he didn't find white and then whimsy dives confidently into the satchel and then he turns it out and he you know goes and looks through all the pockets and everything and so it's like you can kind of figure out that like oh he doesn't find one of the colors he's looking for and then if you go back and look at all the colors that are mentioned you see that there's white mm -hmm. paint on this canvas and there's no white paint here so that's it that's the missing item it was a tube of white paint Right. And the meticulousness of pointing out that these artists mm -hmm. all work with oils, mm -hmm. because if it were a watercolor, you wouldn't. Right. You know, a lot of times white is the negative space of the canvas, but yeah. in but oils, oils, you have to have it. Yeah. yeah. White is really essential. Mm -hmm. As any like Bob Ross watcher will <laughs> know, there's always white. Exactly. So Angela, did you, I am trying to remember the, mm -hmm. again, like thinking back many, many years, I don't think I figured that out my first read through and felt like a very unintelligent reader and then was just like, whatever, it'll, you know, it'll come up eventually. But the first time you read this book, did you stop and just sort of like backtrack yes. and look yes. at all the things that yes, Peter I did? At? Okay. <laughs> I did it the first time I read this book and then I read it this, did it again this time because I couldn't remember what it was. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, oh man, it's been so many years. I don't remember. And I went back and I was like, aha, that's what it is. You know? <laughs> yeah. How does it change, like, as you are reading? Like, how do you think that changes the, the reading experience? What what did it clue you to look for through the rest of the book? I mean, I honestly wasn't sure, like, how that would be relevant. Like, I did not put it together the way that Whimsy does. And so originally I had thought, well, maybe the artist didn't actually, you know, use the things from Campbell's satchel. They brought their own satchel and painted with their own stuff and then just left. Campbell's satchel you know like I was not entirely sure of how that would work out I just knew that that was what they were looking for and it meant someone else had painted it I'm not quite as clever as Lord Peter but <laughs> so few of us are yeah <laughs> yeah but you know Lord Peter goes running around and interviews a lot of different people and pokes his nose in different places and so it kind of gets lost in, in the shuffle yeah all of his general running around but he Mm -hmm. is making a point of visiting artists in their studio and watching them work while they're working mm -hmm. and kind of makes a point of asking people like could you imitate Campbell's style 
which just apparently just about everyone could because it was kind of distinctive and obvious. Well, I think someone talks about how Campbell used all these tricks and techniques and, mm-hmm. you know, you just have to know what the trick is to be able to do it. Right. That it looks very complex, but really mm-hmm. it's it's simple. And in the future, Bob Ross is going to show everyone how to do it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. But it does talk about like Campbell mm-hmm. uses the knife a lot, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. which is like a technique that can look very sophisticated, but isn't necessarily difficult. Mm-hmm. Which I think is the point that that the other artists make mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. it's showy but not necessarily difficult, right? Which is very, I mean, Campbell to a T, right? I think mm-hmm. I think there's a way in which the book often links personality to to technique, right? Mm-hmm. Which certainly, I mean, yeah, it makes sense mm-hmm. from an artistic standpoint. Like somebody who's cool headed and uh, really meticulous is also going to like lay out all of their colors in a certain order on their palette and mm-hmm. paint in a certain way. And then somebody like Campbell, who's maybe more slapdash as a person and violent, the use of a palette knife, right? Linking to kind mm. of the violence that permeates his language and his personality. Yeah. So uh, shall we do a roundup of our fish? Because we have Waters, who's the young mm-hmm. Englishman that Campbell was scrapping with at the very beginning of the book. He mm-hmm. disappears for most of the book. He's just gone and no one knows where. Yes. And then Farron, who's the Mr. Farron to Mrs. Farron, the lady that Campbell had a a platonic but romantic attachment to. Torch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I carried a torch for which she encouraged because she felt an obligation to be sweet and charitable and, and to charitable yeah. and loving to everyone yeah mm-hmm. you also you also get the sense that she enjoyed like she knew exactly how jealous her husband was and she kind of enjoyed mm-hmm. getting under his skin in that way yeah mm-hmm. yeah or like it's just like there's the thing about mrs farron is that there is a showiness to her sweetness and light you know mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. it's very it's a performance also a performance for her husband you know like that she's that he that he objects to her letting Campbell come around but she's like I'm doing it anyway because look at me I'm so Mm -hmm. I'm so good and charitable yeah well and I feel like too is that like Campbell puts Mrs. Farron up on this pedestal where Mm -hmm. she wants to be yeah that's true Mr. Mm -hmm. Farron doesn't necessarily like her being on that pedestal and he doesn't put her up there you know yeah that's very true but we got sidetracked a little bit. But the point is that Mr. Farron has also vanished and no one mm-hmm. knows where he is. Gowan, who is famous for having a, a, a long beard and who is also English, he has disappeared. Although he's supposedly he's he left for England previously and like has been in London this whole time but no one can find him in London and they're just like where mm-hmm. what exactly like what train exactly did he take because we can't find any corroboration record of him yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. he's also in doubt and then Graham wasn't he missing for 2 days yeah yeah he's missing for 2 days and he eventually comes back but then refuses to tell anyone where he was or who he was with but he was not with Mrs. LS who was the person who was trying to yes to She tried to entrap him by providing an alibi, which was totally useless. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then Strachan, 
who is the the person who runs the golf course who had cause to throw Campbell off of the golf course and who has been walking around with a black eye he is there but his his movements are are all up in the air yeah and he's he's being real shady he is being shady as heck yeah like saying that his black eye came because a, a rogue golf ball mm-hmm. nicked yeah. him um, and then the other guy at the golf course is like he wasn't even here that day what do you mean <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah and then ferguson who is campbell's next door neighbor he has an alibi about the corroboration is not quite there like he he says like oh i i went you know to this exhibition in a neighboring town and you know like you i saw you and you on the train and they're just like oh we mm-hmm. didn't see you he's like oh well i saw you you were with so and so and you know like he's able to like describe the exhibition and all that but no one else actually saw him at the crucial times well peter's neighbors run into him at the exhibition right and he says that he saw them on the train but they didn't actually see him until later exactly so that is (laughs) that is our our basket of fish yep and there's just like we aren't like be like beyond that i don't think it makes sense for us to just really new <laughs> really try and summarize the plot because there's so much mm-hmm. but eventually everyone gets tracked down despite all the shadiness and despite all of like the the lies because everyone has been telling lies the thing is is that everyone seems able to account for themselves eventually once they show up once they stop keeping their secrets because of embarrassing circumstances and we're after all that we're still kind of left with a pickle yeah well and then we come to the point where we have like is it the fiscal who calls like the council of war or whatever where he's like all right y'all let's sit down and you know talk about who this was <laughs> yeah the procurator fiscal called theories. the council of war you know and so he's like all right all the police and Lord Peter, let's figure out what this, what, what happened. And then like each, you know, each of them has a different theory and a different suspect until finally they get to Lord Peter and he's like, oh yeah, no, you're all wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Which is so, that just, it's so murder mystery, like Mm -hmm. dinner theater murder mystery. It is. Yeah. (laughs) It's like to the nth degree, right? That Mm -hmm. everybody has a reveal. Everybody. Yeah. I mean, I get, I get kind of frustrated with that part, not just because half of the reveals are in dialect, but because as you're going through, you're like, well, okay, clearly it's not this one because this person went first. Clearly it's not like just all the ones where it's not Lord Peter. You're like, clearly it's not. But I, I do think there's a good point to be made there about we've talked before about how detective fiction sort of perfectly encapsulates reading practice and how, you know, anytime you perform a close reading, right, you're in some ways you're you're acting as a detective of the text, looking for what's missing or what's said slantwise or what what might be revealed if you dig a little deeper. And I, I'm certainly not the first person to make that point, but I, I think there's a way in which this book really, really plays on that linkage mm-hmm. almost to an absurd degree, right? I think there's maybe there's a little poking fun at literary critics here of like, well, yeah, I mean, like, any argument could be made out of, like Angela, you were saying last time, you know, a lot of these theories seem perfectly plausible, but maybe they just leave out one or two key points, right? Um, All of these theories could work, 
and the only reason they don't work is because you know none of the people putting them forward are Lord Peter, mm-hmm. uh, the best reader. I don't know. There's a way in which I feel gently made fun of as both a reader of this book when we get to that point and also as a reader in general because it's just like well yeah like any argument can be made with any amount of evidence uh if you're convincing enough storyteller in some ways well uh Lindsay himself says at the very beginning of uh chapter 26 at last i really feel like sherlock holmes and it is a very like holmesian sort of i will tell you what really happened you know sort of thing Mm -hmm. you know it's almost okay i don't like inspector poirot I find him really annoying. <laughs> I am aware that that's a me problem and that like everything, everything I find irritating about Poirot is something I find endearing about Holmes. I'm like, they're the same person. Just one of them is annoying and one of them is fine, you know, like, so, but this is such a Poirot, like, aha, I'm more clever than y'all, you know? I mean, it is a little fun in that often, you know, usually in a detective novel, like, theories get discarded along the way or yeah it's only the detective um or in rare cases the culprit who gets to do the big long you know like and now harry i have something to tell you that i have neglected to tell you at your entire time of hogwarts right like the the long monologue reveal so i think that yeah there may there is something pleasurable to see like all of these theories get spun out in succession um and i think it was really really smart of sayers to then have peter kind of reconstruct like physically reconstruct the crime because you've been sitting through chapter after chapter of just people talking so the the end of the book really needs a jolt of energy in that way Mm -hmm. in my opinion Well, and I love that that's how it's proved, you know, like, here's how it works with all of these timetables and all of these distances that have been so important this whole time, you know, like, well, here's how it happened. Yeah, which I never even try to keep track of the trains when I'm (laughs) reading the book. I can't be bothered. Peter will explain it to me. What is that like? (laughs) It saves on notebook paper. How does that change the reading experience for you? <laughs> well, it helps me to finish reading. <laughs> yeah, but before before we get into kind of the, I guess, the solution of the plot, did we want to pick up other bits that come up in the, the latter half? I, I know, Karis, you wanted to talk more about the Farron's marriage, right? After we, we meet Mr. Farron? Yeah, this is something that, you know, we've talked about marriages in general. And Sayers does kind of explore the theme of different marriages repeatedly the marriage between mr and mrs Farron is i know i already know that i'm going to want to revisit this once we get to gaudy night Mm -hmm. and so i have to save some of the things i want to say because we can't talk about gaudy night right now i feel like every book i'm just like and gaudy night but we can't (laughs) talk about it (laughs) but the tension between Farron and Mrs. Farron and kind of their conflicting desires of what they want from marriage or how they want to be seen. Like Mrs. Farron has a very specific idea of how she wants to be perceived and she's built her life around a performance to embody that perception. And it doesn't, there isn't room in kind of like in her ongoing performance for ordinary human emotions you know what i mean like there's not room for her husband to just feel human things because she expects him to be part of her ongoing performance art of Mm -hmm. the womanly Mm -hmm. woman yeah 
he can't be he can't express frustration with her because that would be so ungentlemanly you know like you can't you can't just have a a flaming row with mrs fair <laughs> you know like you can't get your emotions out there's not room for that and we've talked about inequality in relationships and i think that this is a really interesting example because the inequality in this relationship is mrs Farron having a tight fist on the emotions that are permitted mm -hmm. yeah like she is like i don't want to use terms incorrectly but it's almost like i would say like borderline that mrs Farron is emotionally abusive of her husband and that may be you know like it, it may be that it can't like that terminology isn't kind of correct mm -hmm. but she is like emotionally manipulative and emotionally controlling and if he gets frustrated with it then she like she just digs deeper into being angelic and like she's always in the right mm -hmm. and that if whatever negative emotions he's feeling are his fault and it certainly i i liked that you called it performance art Karis, because mm. When we first encounter the Farrens in the book, you know, we don't meet Mr. Farron until much later on because he has gone missing. The like consensus in this little village that they live in is that, you know, Mrs. Farron is this wonderful woman and Mr. Farron is a jealous brute. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's that is the image of them that she has constructed for everybody else. That's the role she gave him. Exactly. And by like maintaining that, you know, oh, I just don't like to think of unpleasant things. I'm an angel. She absolutely like always holds the emotional upper hand in the marriage. And, mm -hmm. you know, whether that's abusive or not, it's certainly very unfair. And it's unfair to trap him into, you know, being perceived in, in some ways. I mean, the public perception is that he's the abusive one. Right. Right. That he throws people out of the house, that he doesn't want anyone talking to his wife, da 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 da. Right. And he's controlling. Right. Which then is even more shores up her whole angelic damsel in distress act. And mm -hmm. it's, it, it is, it is, I think, the part of the book that always, that I forget about a lot and then surprises me is when Peter does run down Mr. Farron and you're like, oh, wait, this relationship is like kind of nothing like what we were led to believe, right? He's he's not really what we were led to believe. Well, and I love, you know, when we first see him and he's talking with the children that are watching him paint, you know, and it's just like this long, it's not quite dialogue, but, you know, him just talking to them and, yeah, she yeah. can put the cap on and that's a palette knife, nice and wiggly, you know. He's very patient with these kids. Angela, would you would you like to tell our listeners about the like the circumstances under which we encounter him? Okay, sure. So Whimsy goes to Mrs. Barron and implies that he knows that she got a letter, and so she kind of like goes. She lets it slip. She tells him where Barron was, and he tracks him down. And he is at an inn in somewhere. I don't remember. Yeah. An inn in Scotland. He's in a small town, and he's painting a new sign for this inn. Yeah, and it comes out that Farron had sort of, you know, in his mind, he's running away from home, right? He's decided to just ditch the marriage and... Well, and like, not permanently, but he just, like, he had gotten drunk. He had kind of wandered off. He he woke up, you know, in a, in a ditch, basically, and just... Kept walking. Yeah, he just kept walking. He had enough money in his pocket to to buy a little set of paints and he's just been kind of getting by by going around to to d like local businesses and pubs and inns and 
offering to repaint their signs Mm -hmm. and you know in exchange for you know like a room for the night or a meal or and he like seems really peaceful and happy and he's so sad when peter shows up he's so sad because peter's gonna take him back it's like a weight drops on him when he realizes that he's been found and he has to go back i think it's kind of funny that nope never mind my brain just completely stopped working i don't know yeah, it Never happens. Mind. It happens. You would not believe how often we do that. <laughs> oh, it happens so often when you hit record. <laughs> I yeah. think it's kind of funny, and then just nothing. Nothing there. No idea. Nothing's funny. <laughs> nothing has ever been funny. <laughs> It'll come back later. I'm yeah. sure. I'm sure. Can I use this as a weird seg into reputation in small villages? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Go for it. Slide right in there. <laughs> <laughs> I think you know, speaking of the the public perception of the Farrens versus kind of the actual dynamics of their relationship, I, I think something this book does a lot actually is point out that, you know, it, it seems to at first just engage in that kind of worn out theme that, oh, if you live in a small country village, then everybody knows who you are and everybody knows your history and everybody knows your business. But I think both with the Farrens and with Mr. Gowan, it sort of, the book really turns that on its head. Mm. Um, so Gowan is the Englishman who also goes missing, supposedly the night of the the murder. And he, he's the one with the really funny butler with the Mr. Halcock, Mr. Alcock, etc. And the maid who says, you know, who has the sort of gothic encounter in the house. But the sort of subplot with with Gowan is that he had gotten into a fight with Campbell. So he was he was the person who almost ran into Campbell in the road. And they get into a a big fight and Campbell pulls out like fistfuls of Mr. Gowan's beard. Gowan is not the person who murders Campbell, but he goes home and he has to one, he's like all bruised. And so he has to be taken care of. But he also has to shave his beard off. And that's actually why he kind of flees the village because later on it comes out that, you know, this man who'd been so intimidating to everybody and was known for his beard and sort of serious demeanor actually has an extremely weak chin and like a slight jaw. And, you know, I think they, they say his face is like rabbity at a certain yeah. point. <laughs> it's like the face of a sulky rabbit. Yeah. It's a brilliant phrase. It is a brilliant phrase. And, you know, we can get it all into the nuances of like toxic masculinity and equating a beard with being strong. And, you know, who cares if he has like a kind of weak chin? But once again, it's sort of this like, there's there's a reputation that he has established for himself or that other people see him as. And then later on, you realize that the it's it's kind of all smoke and mirrors, right? And that nobody in this village has ever seen him without his beard for that reason. And it's kind of sad, actually. They they like really make fun of him once they once they decide that he looks like a weak man. And you know, I'm not thrilled about that. But I think once again, this it's just interesting to see come up in a in a book that's you know that that is engaging so much with art and with surface versus depth, representation versus reality, and so forth. I remembered one of our Twitter followers asked us if we had any theories about why Peter gets along so well with artists. Oh. And I thought that might be an interesting thing. Yeah. You know, we, we've described Peter in the past as having an artistic temperament, you know, and uh, he's a, a sensitive and empathetic person. And I think, you know, probably one of the reasons that he gets along well with artists is that he understands artistic temperament. Like, what does that even mean? But I think it, 
when I think of it, I tend to think people who get focused on their work, you know, you get a little bit lost in what you're doing. And Peter understands that. Mm-hmm. He's also very non-judgmental, I think, in terms of, mm-hmm. I mean, he has very exacting tastes, right, when it comes to art and wine and women. <laughs> but in the sense of, it, it's very fascinating to me because where where detectives are often supposed to be the like authoritative moral voice of of a mystery and we've talked about peter as having you know a strong ethical sense and a strong sense of justice that isn't necessarily the same thing as a strong sense of like legality at the same time he he is like remarkably unbothered right by mm-hmm. things that other people you know he's he's unbothered by harriet having had sex outside of wedlock he's unbothered by sylvia and ilunid being lesbians he's unbothered by just a a lot of things that i think society would judge people for and i think that's part of his like sympathetic nature or or the part of him that like the the more bohemian artists that we see him interact with appreciate i have nowhere to go after that okay (laughs) (laughs) i guess we did a pretty good job of um talking about Peter's character and personality in a book where he exhibits very little of either. Right. Yeah. That to me, that's what this book lacks is Peter. Mm-hmm. You know, you're reading this book where Peter is supposedly the main character and where is he? There are just a handful of parts where I feel like I'm kind of getting the Lord Peter that I showed up for. Like when he's he's loitering in Ferguson's studio and chattering away and like bursts a tube of paint. Mm-hmm. And that reminds me of what I love about Sarah's, which is when she conveys stuff through dialogue, because you don't really know what he's doing until he, he's talking about like, Oh, I've, it's gone everywhere. There's a bit where he realizes that someone is leaving from Gowan's house in a car late at night. And he is running to see if he can get a look at them and, and falls down. <laughs> Um, and then goes home and is just like, Bunter, such and such happened. And Bunter's just like, oh, yes, I know. I was watching. <laughs> I, I did the thing that you were trying to do and totally failed to do. <laughs> and I did it spectacularly, <laughs> my lord. Then Bunter's, or Peter says something like, why do I bother to detect things? <laughs> You're always ahead of me. Does it feel like, I mean, I'm sure it feels like a regression after the huge amounts of like character interiority we get Mm. in strong poison but do you think it's actually supposed to represent i mean i don't i don't know how to ask this question without like read you know dorothy sayers's mind which is the the stupidest and most boring kind of literary analysis but in the sense of okay i guess approaching it from like a reader response angle do you do you think that's partially why you and I find this book disappointing cars is because oh, it feels like such a step back. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Like we've read strong poison where it's just like, <gasps> so many emotions, and so <laughs> many feelings. And like, we've gotten mm-hmm. so deep into mm-hmm. Peter's perspective and like, it's so like, it feels so rich and you know, like, it's just like you, you've had something like so complex and interesting. And then, you get five red herrings and it's saltines and saltines are fine. <laughs> so I think this was actually the second, it was the second or third Lord Peter book that I read. Um, I know that I read Murder Must Advertise first. Oh, such a good one. Sorry. And I don't remember if this one was second or third. So I think coming at it from the point of view of you've just read Strong Poison 
is a different context than so different yeah mm -hmm. the first time i read it i didn't really know peter that well anyway you know right right one well, like murder must advertise is another one which like we can't go into too much detail but you don't you get more of peter in that one but not as much as you do in like strong poison and yeah. it also kind of doesn't dig into the things that strong poison dug into even though it takes place afterwards but it's so much less boring than like, like <laughs> it's so it's, it's so it's, good it's so how can you be bored there's so much going on in this book okay that's how can angela, you be bored there's so many trains <laughs> angela the time has come for you to mount your rousing defense of how fun this book is for yes. the type of reader who really really cares about mapping out all the trains and the schedules and so forth i mean i don't know what else i have to say other than it's it's fantastic i mean there's all of these clues there's all of these people who are going all these places at all these times and there's you know this maid saw someone in this house at this time and this person saw someone on this road at this time you know it's there's so many details and there's so much there's so many clues there's almost like too many clues <laughs> but you have to make them all work there's definitely too many clues there's so yes. many clues in this book but yeah i don't know what else to say like it's great i love it <laughs> so uh angela's like the more clues the better yeah like how is that how is that not a universal <laughs> <laughs> i mean experience. i like clues. i like i like clues but i want them wrapped up in fraught emotions yeah and this book has very little in the way of fraud emotion like that's why we've spent so much time talking about the Farrens when comparatively they're a mm. small aspect of the book it's because like that's the one intense emotional aspect so i'm just like this is the this yeah. is the thing that i think is interesting yeah. <laughs> i love so much where peter is like let's walk through how it actually happened <laughs> i do really like that part i do you know what it reminds me of mm. what it reminds me of the end of the movie Clue, mm, yeah. where Tim Curry is running back and forth and being like, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. <laughs> I mean, yeah, this is quite literally what Peter's doing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, who would like to outline the ending? <laughs> I think we should make Angela do it. We should make Angela do it. Because she's clearest. Yes. So <laughs> let's give us, so listeners, we are about to give away the whodunit and Somehow, impossibly, Angela is going to outline the how done it. <laughs> um, so this is this is your warning. If you have not yet read or finished Five Red Herrings and you desperately want to try to figure it out yourself, um, this is the time to turn off the podcast and return once uh, once you've read the book. All right, Angela. Without further ado, who killed Campbell? It was Ferguson. <laughs> Yes, and how did he do it? Um, by well, accident. Oh, oh, yeah, by accident. Yeah, basically, like Campbell came to his house and was being all Campbelly, and they had a fight, and he hit his head, and he died. And so Ferguson was like, "Uh, shit. Um, I could call somebody, but who's gonna believe that I didn't do this on purpose?" And so basically, he yeah. comes up with the idea to stage the whole thing and provide himself with an alibi he's actually the only one with an alibi that looks airtight well and that's what kind of what peter that's what peter latches on to right he's uh -huh. like who would go through this elaborate rigmarole of exactly staging yeah. the body staging a painting except someone who 
had the opportunity to have a very good alibi on Monday morning, but had no alibi for Sunday night. Tuesday morning. Monday Tuesday night. morning. Yeah. And Monday night. Sorry. Thank it's you. On, it's a, it happens on a Tuesday, Sharon. That's very important. Thank you. It's an Thank important because detail. If, if you had not corrected me, we would have gotten emails about it. <laughs> yeah. So he's the one with the airtight, with, you know, it looks like an airtight alibi. And like everyone else, like either was missing for like four days or was whatever. Like they don't have good alibis for the time in question. Oh, well, he could have easily snuck off from his friends and gone and killed him and then come back, you know. And so Ferguson is the one that takes the pains to construct this alibi for himself involving the trains. He buys a ticket for an early train and then he goes and does the staging of the painting. And then he goes and takes a different train, gets to Glasgow, and he... As he's walking by the station hotel, he notices Whimsy's neighbors eating lunch with some friends. And so he's able to say later when he meets them, like, oh, yeah, I saw you on the train and I saw that you were meeting these people, you know. So he does that. And the thing is, like, the thing it hinges on is making sure that his ticket from the early train is accounted for. And so each station, they punch the tickets with these certain letters. And so he goes to a bookbinding shop and says that he wants these letters and numbers so that he can punch his own ticket to make it look as though he actually rode all the way to Glasgow on the first train and not on a later train. Oh, and the other thing was um, the reason that he suddenly had to go to Glasgow, like also like he couldn't take his car and stuff was because he said that his car, you know, there was a part in the engine that needed to be fixed, so he had to take it to the motor shop. He goes there, and he establishes, like, he tells the clerk, like, I've been waiting for 10 minutes. And so the kid's like, oh, man, this guy's here, and he's been waiting 10 minutes. He needs to see you right away. And really, he had just, like, slipped in the door and didn't, you know, the kid didn't notice him. So, like, there's all these things where he, like, makes his alibi look tighter than it actually was. Right. And Peter ends up, when he does his reconstruction, he actually goes through every single step, right? Including like buying the the typeset letters and, you know, making up a story of like, oh, sorry, you know, I like the fi- at the final destination, they didn't take my ticket, which I do wonder, I mean, that the, the, the ticket thing, the, the fact that Ferguson forges his ticket, I... I don't remember there being a clue for that earlier on. I like I think the thing with the train ticket is more that it's just kind of less that there is a clue going into it, but more that like anyone who spent some time thinking about it would realize how easy it is to forge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, mean, I think like when this book came out, like you would be aware that that's how train tickets are punched, you know. You'd be like, "Oh yeah, yeah. they put the letters and the numbers." Whereas me being an American, in you know 2020 it doesn't like, take trains <laughs> i've been i've been on a couple trains i do wonder if the train people were you know got worried about excessive forgery after this book because she really walks you through exactly how to do it <laughs> right yeah. yeah but it's also like why would you need to forge you know like as an alibi for murder Karis. oh right of course of course of course of course <laughs> which we have established is terrifyingly easy to do yeah <laughs> listeners let us remind you again please (laughs) don't murder people no matter how easy it is yes we would appreciate that yeah yeah so peter i mean it's really a feat of both like his intelligence as a detective and then you know also the we we've talked about before his physicality like his Mm -hmm. to just like reconstruct all this through over the course of 
you know, most of a night and part of a day. So like, and, and that reconstruction takes up a huge part of the end of the book. And then it's interesting, right? Because they have Ferguson with them for most of the time. Cause they're like, oh yeah, you know, we, we need to borrow your house to, <laughs> to do some things, to do some detective things. Um, and he's getting more and more nervous as he's watching all this. And then at the end, he, it's, it's such a, I don't know, it's like kind of an anticlimax when they, you know, basically they kind of get him to confess. Uh, mm-hmm. At one point they'd left him behind, I think when they started doing all the trains and then he tried to run away and was arrested and cautioned by the police. But then Ferguson says like, you know, you got you got all of it right, except that I accidentally killed him. I didn't mean to kill Campbell. And I still say and say again, it was not murder. Whimsy got up. Look here, Ferguson. He said, I'm damn sorry. And I always thought it couldn't really be murder. Will you forgive me? I'm glad, said Ferguson. I felt like hell ever since I'd really rather stand my trial, etc, etc. And then the book wraps up in a two sentence paragraph that begins the jury after hearing of Mr. Gowan's experiences, i.e. the the fight with Campbell, took a view midway between murder and self defense. They brought it in manslaughter with a strong recommendation to mercy on the ground that Campbell was undoubtedly looking for trouble. And like that's and then the end, right? There's no there's no long drawn out court trial. There's just it just ends. It's just like, yeah, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think it's interesting too because Ferguson is so like sympathetic. Like it's almost like he's the victim here. Which is maybe why we get that long drawn out bit in Campbell's head at the beginning to He's really someone that, like, nobody's sorry to see go. Yeah. And when Whimsy says, you know, I always thought it couldn't really be murder, like, that's such a, an interesting sentence. Right. Given that there really should have been many signposts that, like, a lot of people could have murdered Campbell. Yeah. So that's it. We did it the end. Yay. Yeah. I think this this is one of the things that differentiates this from any other mystery, because, like, it's wasn't murder it was accidental manslaughter mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but he, he just made everything worse by trying to cover it up with this elaborate plot it's like why didn't why didn't you just call someone and be like look this happened it was an accident mm-hmm. like everyone would have believed you yeah he outclevered but... himself yeah that that's mm-hmm. that's it that's the book <laughs> you did it guys you got through it we did it <laughs> Thank you for helping us, Angela. You're welcome. You're welcome. Yes, yes. Thank you so much, Angela, for joining us. We were, it was so much fun to have you on. I, I had a lot of fun too. This was really fun. Oh, I'm I'm glad. I know it can be very unpleasant to be the person defending a thing that other people <laughs> are like, ah, I don't get it. So I appreciate. <laughs> I'm just like I just love it. I don't know. I don't know how to explain it. It's just good. So <laughs> I don't know what's wrong with you Is people. Is it your Angela? I have a question. Mm-hmm. Okay. In terms of like the pure mystery, is it your favorite of the whimsy books, or is there like another book's mystery that you like better? Um, I think this one might be my favorite, yeah, in terms of just the mystery. But that's because it gives me a lot of things to dig into, you know. Mm. Even rereading it, there's so many things that I'm like, oh yeah, oh yeah, and this, you know. So I might, I might be the one who might reconstruct all the other alibis and stuff and see all the people's movements. I don't know. That sounds like a fun project that I might do. And then I can be like, here it is. I did it. Well, if you do, we will link it in the show notes. I'm just imagining Angela, like, this is my quarantine project. And it's like a wall with like string. And... Like a murder it's wall. The, it's the graphic of um, what's his face? 
Yeah. Oh yeah, the Charlie um Charlie Day. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what did you spend your time in quarantine doing? This <laughs> Amazing. A masterpiece. Do you think a depressed person could make this? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, listeners, so much for joining us and Angela. As we talked about Five Red Herrings, we hope that you enjoyed these episodes and that you enjoyed the book more than Sharon and I did, although not as much as Angela did because that's impossible. But coming up next in two weeks, we're going to start talking about Have His Carcass, which is one of my very favorite of the Whimsy books. So I'm very excited and we hope that you will join us again. In the meantime, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram as at WhimsyPod. That's Whimsy spelled W-I-M-S-E-Y. Our website where you can find transcripts for each episode as well as links to any resources we mentioned on today's podcast is asmywhimsytakesme.com. Our logo is by Gabby Vicioso, and our theme music was composed and recorded by Sarah Mahalik. If you've enjoyed this episode of As My Whimsy Takes Me, we'd be really grateful if you would give us a rating and leave us a review on iTunes or on your podcaster of choice. We also hope that you'll tell all of your friends who love Dorothy L. Sayers as much as we do. See you next time for more Talking Piffle.